back to the Freewheeling Podcast. My name is Abby Mickey. We are continuing our series of interviews for the off-season with Lauren Rowney. She had a chat with Yolene Dehor, the retired professional cyclist who's raced on such teams as SD Works, some of the top teams. She's won a ton of big races, and she's one of Belgium's top riders. She now directs for the AG Insurance Next Gen team that is stepping it up next year and has added riders like Ashley Millman Passio. And she had a lot to talk about with Lauren. So before we dive into the interview, this episode is brought to you by Zwift. Zwift is still doing their Zwift Academy. That is a amazing pathway for riders from all backgrounds, all ages, anywhere, anywhere in the world to try to make it into the women's world tour. They have a contract with Canyon Stram up for grabs, and they've recently announced their 2022 Zwift Academy winner that will be out in the world anytime, but it's not just for those who are hoping to win a professional contract. Every year, the Zwift Academy has awesome workouts on Zwift that you can pop on and do yourself. It's got a really incredible multi-month long process to help you get a little bit more fitness or test yourself. And they do it every year. Once the Zwift Academy ends, those workouts are actually still on Zwift. So you can do them any time of year, which is awesome. They're really fun. It's always more efficient to do workouts and intervals on the trainer. The time goes by faster. So check out those Zwift Academy workouts on Zwift. And thank you so much to Zwift for sponsoring this episode. Um, so welcome to Freewheeling Your Lynn. And for those wondering where I've been the past month, I've been having a bit of an off season too, um, which you're currently in, but I'm guessing you're still working at the moment. Yeah, I'm still working. Um, it's quite busy now. Um, we're doing all the preparations for, for the new season. And um, yeah, very soon we're having our first uh, team training camp. So it's, it's quite busy. And you've just come back from the UCI director's course in Argel in Switzerland. Were there uh, a few other familiar faces there from the Peloton? Yeah, actually, we had a we had a quite a cool classroom. We had uh, Ilio Kese in there, Sam Bully, um, TJ van Garderen, Sebastian Langeveld. So, yeah, a lot of famous guys and uh, from the men's Peloton. And uh, it was really fun, actually. I think it's like it's quite a common thing to see the men finish their careers and sort of transition straight into the sports director role. Um, and that's been something that's been happening for decades, actually. But with the women, not so much. I think previously it was like once you were done, you sort of just left the sport and moved back into perhaps what you'd studied before or um, search for a completely different career. But now it's it's really like a profession that a lot yeah. of the, the ex-pros want to do. Why do you think that is now? Um, yeah, I don't know, but I think for women, like for me, why I'm doing it, um, like I'm coming from the decade where we were riding without radios. So we had to, yeah, figure out everything ourselves, like tactic wise. Um, and that helped me a lot to, you know, to gain knowledge about racing. And then, um, now they depending so much on the radios that they're not thinking anymore. And I think, yeah. That's why I can really help them. That's a feeling I have. So um, that's why I wanted to become a DS. Mm -hmm. So you think that the job is actually more attractive now because, I mean, we can, we'll can we we'll get into that actually a bit of your career and 
and how it's changed the sport. But um, before, like you said, like 10 years ago when we were racing each other at the very start almost, mm-hmm. um, I think it was just the World Cups and the World Championships were, I think that's when they started without radios. So yeah, it was mostly the World Cups. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But for us, it was like, it was quite normal. And we learned to, to talk with your teammates and you learned to communicate in the race and now it's like totally different. It's a different world. And now sometimes when we ride a, a 1.2 race, it's without radios. And then you can see, you can really tell the difference um, within the bunch. And also with my girls, it's a, it's a huge difference. And um, yeah, I'm I'm pro for the radios. Like it's really helpful and it's, it's really safe. Um, but also I think you need to think for yourself in the race as well and not depending too much on the radios. Yeah, I think that that's been the biggest change, right, is it's not, would you say, in a sense, riders have become a bit lazy because you have riders like Van Dyke who have been in the peloton since, what, 2007, I suppose? Um, yeah. And I, now. True, yeah, but I, w- I wouldn't say lazy. Lazy is like a big word, but uh, if if I look at my team, maybe I'm talking too much on the radio. That could also be the case. Uh Cause like I'm full gas on the radio and I'm, I'm I'm saying everything, and maybe that makes them a bit lazy. So maybe it's my mistake as well. Um, but yeah, in in one way it is maybe. And the the older girls, like the more experienced girls, um, they're used to ride without radio. So so that's different for them. And I think like we'll get into um, you know, your team AG Insurance Next Gen um, over the coming hour. But, like, largely speaking, um, it's been a lot of young riders and my short experience with the Australian national team and working with the juniors is, um, you know, when I was in the car for the time trial at Worlds, they love a lot of input. Whereas um, Grace Brown with with Donna, who was in the radio, she just wanted really key points and none of the fluff around it. But I think the young riders do like a little bit of, motivational talk and like, you know, telling them, you know, get into this position Um, for the women who've been in the peloton a long time. I found it really helpful just knowing when certain corners were coming up or if there was something dangerous on the road or if you had insight that there was some gravel or if it was wet or, you know. Yeah, that's that's the main difference between the younger riders and the older riders. And yeah, past season, we like mostly had young girls. Uh, They were 19, 20, 21 years old. And then, then I could talk a lot, but I think for, for next season, with riders like uh, Romy and Ashley in the team, um, I think I have to shift my tactic a little bit. Yeah, so why don't we get into that, actually? So for next year, um, Age Insurance Next Gen has applied for World Tour status. I'm guessing that hasn't been announced, at least not in the media yet. Um, and you've had, you know, the signing of Ashley Mulman-Pasio, which, I mean, she's a huge name in the sport, she had a fantastic season. I think when we had our bike ride, we were discussing just how consistent she was mm-hmm. um, this year. And it seems like she's going from strength to strength. So we all thought it was an interesting signing from the freewheeling perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. you were, you know, you're one of the head DSs, so you're involved in those meetings. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, how that conversation started and where you see Ashley fitting in? Well, um, first of all, like with this season, we were really pleased with how the team uh, performed. Um, we were always there in the final, but we never had like the, a top result because we never had a, a finisher or a leader in the team. So we missed a little bit of experience and, and we, missed, we, missed, we missed the leader, actually. Um, 
So we were looking for somebody with experience, somebody older, um, uh, so somebody who can finish off the races. And um, that's why we came with Ashley. Um, so uh, Natasha, the team manager, she had a conversation with Ashley. Um, we knew there were rumors about retiring, but we didn't know 100% for sure if it was true or not. Um, so yeah, Natasha had a conversation and that was positive, like from both sides. Ashley was really interested in the story uh, within the team, um, like building up and having that surrounding for, for younger riders. Um, so yeah, it went from there. And then I think uh, the rest is history. And then, uh, yeah, I'm really pleased with Ashley now in the team. Um, yeah, in a few weeks then from the 1st of January. Um, but she is like she is like a natural leader eh? um, with the way she presents herself. Uh, she's good at communicating. Uh, she's a role model for younger riders. Um, and that's, that's a really positive characteristic. Um, but if you are a leader, you also have to act like one and show it in the race. And somehow that wasn't the case with uh, SD Works last season. Mm -hmm. Because um, you and Ashley, did you cross over on that team? Yes. Um, yeah. So we yeah. were teammates in SD Works for one year. And I was also, uh, I guess, three years teammates with her with Lotto Belisol. Oh, yeah. Um, I forgot about the early days. Like nine, ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, um, you know. So, when, yeah. When that was actually the first moment that I met Ashley um, back in, I think it was 2012. Um, and then she really was a leader in the team and that worked out really well in Lotto. So I think she can really handle it and she can really step up as a leader. Yeah, well, I, I remember, I think it was yeah 2013. She really had some standout performances. I think she podiumed at Flesh Wallon that year. Um, she came very close to winning a Giro stage, if I recall. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, the team was pretty strong that year for, for Lotto since, um, you know, yeah. it's it's developed a lot since you left. And also with Kapeki leaving several mm -hmm. years ago now, um, I guess we can actually go into a little bit of um, Belgian cycling perhaps. And um, I don't want to jump too much all over the place, but a bit later in the conversation, we can talk about, you know, you've just actually retired after about a 12 to 15 year career if you count junior worlds. I think a lot of listeners don't realize that you were junior world champion in South Africa, I believe. Yeah, that's true. But it was a bit unexpected because I wasn't supposed to do the road race. I was only there for the track. Um, but yeah, the road race was one week after the track race and I was still there. So there was one spot left. So I started anyway. And then, yeah, I won that race. So good memory. And then you were racing for Top Sport Flanderen, right? And that was your first team for a few years before you got picked up by Lotto. Yeah, that's true. So uh, five years for Top Sport Flanderen and then uh, a few years Lotto Belisol, so both uh, Belgian teams. Yeah, so I think this is a good opportunity to, to talk a little bit about your career and then actually transitioning into this role. Um, you know, if I remember in 2015, I think... You know, every year there's that rider who who really stands out and it's like, wow, this is their year. That was definitely where I think you really stepped onto the stage, um, mm -hmm. the world stage, and you were winning a lot. Um, you were with Wiggle Honda that year, I believe. Yeah, and um, it seemed like this massive transition in your career to becoming one of the best sprinters in the world. Yeah, well, until 2013, I was always combining uh, cycling with my uh, with university. So, and university was for me like priority number one. So, um, cycling came in second place. 
Um, so until then, I, I never trained like 100% and never rested enough. Um, so like from time to time, I had nice results. But I also knew if if I would be like 100% professional, I, I could do better. Um, and then in 2015, I I had no worries. I, I was like 100% like doing everything what I should have done, uh, being a real pro. And then also riding for Wiggle Honda was like a brand new team. Well, it was not a new team, but with a lot of new riders that time, like upcoming riders with Elisa Longo-Borghini, Audrey Cordon, uh, Chloe Hosking. And yeah, we really had fun. And that year, everything went well. And yeah, just having fun is also happy head, happy legs. So um, we had nice results also for myself. Yeah. I think at that point you had all the best sprinters in the world almost in your team. It was kind of like when you guys showed up, it was everyone was thinking, who are they going to pick today? Because, you know, (laughs) you had Nettie on there as well, I think, that year. Yep. Um, Yeah, it was that year. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just, it was kind of crazy, actually. But somehow it worked. You were all willing to, you know, say, this is her day today. You have Bronzini. Um, Yeah, true. Somehow it it worked out really well. And, yeah, our our key, the key important role was like Bronzini. She helped us so much. And I learned everything from her that year. Sometimes she was in the race, like riding behind us and like screaming what to do. So, um, uh, yeah, it was it was incredible. And and yeah, you, you couldn't think of that anymore right now that it would happen now. Um, but having Bronzini in that team was 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 instrumental for us. And um, yeah, uh, like Elisa won Tour of Flanders and I came second. And uh, yeah, it was like a, it was like a dream that year. And um Everything everything went well and we were having fun. So yeah. And I mean, from then on, your your results were really consistent. Even in your final year of racing, you were still up there. Um, and you're only 32 now sitting here mm-hmm. ta- talking to you. Um, we're seeing the women stay in the Peloton longer and longer now because obviously there's just been this development in the sport, not only um in terms of the racing, but the salary gap that the women are earning enough now that it's, you know, you can look at it as a real profession that, um, you know, someone who's an accountant and goes to work to every, um, goes to work every day. So for, for you, um, mm-hmm. you could have stuck around longer, like Ellen Van Dyke, I think she's about 35 now. Um, why the decision to re- retire? And then on top of that, you seem like it was almost a seamless transition. Yeah, I, I could have continued out. I still love riding my bike. I, I still love the sport, but um, I also want to pursue like a second career um, and becoming a DS, like giving all the experience that I have from the bunch to the, to the next generation. It's like, that's, that's a new challenge for me. And I was looking for that. I was looking for a new challenge. And maybe also in the last few years, I couldn't live like hundred percent anymore for my sport. I could live like 95%, but with the level going up that much, it, that wasn't enough. Um, so every year you have to do more and more for your sport and you have, you have to live on a mountain and you have to be away for training camps, like during, during the season. And yeah, I couldn't do it anymore because I, I also had a life outside of cycling and, you know, I, I just wanted to do different stuff and, uh, I'm happy now and I love what I do now. And I also love that I'm still in the sport. So, um, yeah, I'm a happy person. Well, that's great to hear. Um, because we know that some people leaving the sport, do have um, a really rough time and we spoke about it um, when we went for a ride that it's like 
I mean, it's part of your identity and so much so for some people that when they leave, if they don't stay in the sport, they just have no clue what to do. And I feel like for the men, almost more so than the women, because it appears that, like you mentioned, you studied, you're actually a qualified physiotherapist. So Mm -hmm. should you have chosen a different path, it might have taken a while to regain that knowledge, but you could have become a physio. Where I think with the men, quite often it's like they're in the sport 15 to 20 years. Um, most of them don't study. And it's like, like you said, it's all they know. All yeah. their friendships are within the sport. So as soon as you sort of sever that tie, it's like, oh shit, what do I do? I either get an industry job or I become sports director. Where now it's sounding like, you know, women have the option to go back to what they wanted to do before, whether that's journalism, engineering, maybe um, nursing or doctor or something like that, or stay in the sport and give back like you have. Yeah, true. But at the same time, like cycling is such a small world. Um, Yeah, you see all the time, same people. Um, You're so focused on yourself, on your your cycling life, that uh, if you do that, like for 10, 15 years, um, you become quite stupid on 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 any other terrain, I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, like, I have a degree in in a physio as a physiotherapist, but I, yeah, I can't think of me being a physiotherapist right now because um, I'm so far away from it, um, and it feels like the only thing I know right now is is everything about cycling, and and that's okay if if you can live with it, that's okay. Um, I just love it, and that's why I decided to become a DS. But at the same time, that's maybe something new to tell. Uh, I will study again next year. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start uh, sport management. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a study for one year, and I'm gonna combine it with uh, with being a DS. Uh, so yeah, I need challenges in my life. So that's why I did it. Um, so it's important for yourself to find to find what you like and uh, to love what you do. And yeah, life is already short, so just just do what you love. I think that's really sage advice and um, that's a nice segue actually into the team and, and sort of how you ended up where you are because it's my understanding you you started with uh, Cycling Flander and so for those who, who don't know what that is, that's basically, you know, you have Flanders and Wallonia and that's the governing body of, of Flanders where Jolene and I live um, and you were only going to do the part-time DS thing and mm-hmm. combine the two and then you went full-time. Yeah, exactly. So I retired with cycling and I was like, okay, I'm going to do everything that comes on my path right now. And then, and then I'll decide what I like most. Um, so it was quite, quite a lot. Uh, I had to work from Monday till Friday, like from eight till five or six in the evening. And then the weekends I went to the races. Um, but then in the week I was sitting behind a desk, behind a laptop, um, like (laughs) writing stuff. And then I had to go to, yeah, to, people above me like presenting that and then they had to say yes or no you know and oh that I hated it so much because I wasn't able to change anything so you just had to say yes or no and that was it just do your job and then listen to them (laughs) so yeah that was that was not for me uh I enjoyed myself so much in the weekends at the races um there I could decide what we we were going to do in the race um tactic wise the girls would listen to me so that was different in my job. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's why I decided to become a full-time DS and, and quit with uh, Cycling Vlaanderen. Yeah. And then, so how did it come about actually with AG Insurance Next Gen? 
Um, so my last year as a writer, Natasha also contacted me uh, and I was like, nah, DS, that's not for me. Um, I've never seen myself as a DS. Uh, so yeah, I, I put it aside. But then, um, yeah, my, my last year as, as a writer was was quite hectic and rough um, in my personal life. Um, so that's why I decided like, okay, I give it a go and and, and I'll see where, where it goes, where it leads. Um, so yeah, it was a was a rash a rational decision actually, and uh, I'm happy I did it. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're loving loving this role and being in the convoy, a bit of a rally car drive. I've heard. Um, so, you know, I I understand a bit about the structure of the team, mm-hmm. but can you can you describe to the listeners like the development of this team? Um, like we said before, you're waiting for your world tour license at the moment. Um, I believe you've got an under three development team. There's three or more teams within. Well, the, the team started back in 2018 as a junior team. Um, and then it stepped up uh, becoming an under 23 team and still a junior team. So then they were having two teams until this season, actually. Um and then for, for next year, we want to add a world tour team, so an elite team. Uh, but we're waiting on the final decision from the UCI uh, on the 9th of December. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully we can become a world tour team. If not, then we just become a continental team. And then hopefully we can do the mix between the elite team and the under 23. So, for mm-hmm. example, if, if we go to big races, then we can say we, we have four elite, elite riders. And then we're going to add or mix in with two under 23 riders. Um, that would be the ideal scenario. Um, so then, yeah, we, we will have like the full pyramid and then we can have the same way of working with the juniors as with the elites. So we can make the transi- transition a bit easier for them. Um, and yeah, it's just nice also having the same staff for the juniors, for the under 23. It feels like a real team. It's quite a big team now, but um yeah, the, the whole plan behind it, the whole story, it's really um it's really amazing. And that's that's all thanks to Natasha. Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to talk to you a bit about this, because if we look at your team as an example, this is basically the perfect structure of development and pathways for riders. Um, because you know, we see it with the men's teams, um, recruiting really young riders and then developing them, and you have those feeder teams within a team that then go into the pro team. So, yeah. you know, yeah, you're getting return on your investment essentially by, you know, taking these young riders, nurturing them, and then when they're ready, stepping them up into that world tour sort of situation. Because I think this is something we spoke about um, and we talk about in the podcast quite a lot is this divide between now the world tour and what mm-hmm. we call the continental level. It's like it's growing and growing and growing. Um, yeah, that's, that's it's an issue. Yeah, it is an issue. That's 100% true. And that's the big problem now. You see a lot of rotor teams signing junior riders from, from last season. So those girls who are 18, 19 years old, they're going to they're gonna ride the big races next year. They're going to be maybe in Tour of Flanders. And that's that's just too much for them. And maybe they can handle it. The good ones will handle it. But a lot of them um, will struggle with it. And mentally, that's so hard. And especially when the level is going up, that fast in, in women's cycling. Um, and that's what we are trying to do. So with our under 23 riders, we're looking for a program with 1.2 races, uh, 1.1 races, where they, where they can 
like battle for the victory where where they can have that feeling of going for victory um and that that's that's super important for them and and then from time to time if you maybe have a classic rider in the under 23 they can maybe do a world to race as Brugge de Panne or Gent um mm-hmm. but having like two or three or four races of that in the season that's that's more than enough um yeah. so that's what that's our aim with the team This episode is also brought to you by Shimano GRX Carbon Wheels. Tested by Shimano's top gravel athletes and proven on the roads of Unbound, the GRX Carbon Wheels are lightweight, responsive, and ready for any mixed train. The 25 millimeter internal rim width is designed for tires ranging from 32 to 50 millimeters, and Shimano's cup and cone hubs provide proven reliability no matter how far down the road less traveled your adventures take you. Thank you so much to Shimano for sponsoring this episode. Now let's get back to the interview. Like we've mentioned before, those races, those 1.2s, 1.1s, were instrumental in getting riders, like at least in our time, noticed and signed onto bigger teams because you would always have a few of the bigger teams showing up. So there were like eyes on the ground and it was always, like you said, an opportunity to have a really good race, mm-hmm. but not so hard like going to Tour of Flanders where basically your chances of getting dropped in the first 60 kilometres are pretty high. Um, there's yeah. just, It just seems like there's not as many opportunities from the outside. Yeah, that exactly. And if I look at myself, so I was a, a junior world champion with the, yeah, in, back in 2008. And then uh, I became an elite. And every every year I did Tour of Flanders because it was a home race. I just wanted to do it. And it took me five years until I could finish the race, um, let alone like going for a result. Uh, but at the same time, I won 1.2 races, 1.1 races, but still I couldn't finish Tour of Flanders. So mm-hmm. that's just an example of, yeah, even if you're a good uh, junior rider, it takes it can take time uh, to become a good elite rider and um, we're giving we're giving that time to those riders in our team. Yeah, and of course now like you mentioned it's on a whole new level because when we were racing there were some brilliant riders, but mm-hmm. actually if we look at the depth of field now going back to what you were saying how it's just become so professional and yeah. I think thinking about that article Tom Dumoulin wrote about his retirement is just that you have to give every part of your soul now basically to the sport because it's just on that level, and this is for the women, that you're mm-hmm. living and breathing it. There's, you know, no mucking around like um, I used to do actually quite a lot at the races on the start line just to relax myself. It's a very yeah, different too. sort of um, atmosphere now. It is. It, it feels more like a job. And for us in the past, it was more like a hobby. It, wasn't, it was more about having fun. Um, and like, it, it, I think it would be difficult also now to combine it with uh, university or other studies because um, you need to be so focused all the time. You need to have your rest as well. Um, so, yeah, it's just a different world and you can't compare it anymore. That's true. So, I mean, a really important thing is having a backup um, because if you have a terrible injury or or illness that puts you on the sidelines and you've invested everything, you know, into 
into the sport. And I mean, this is with all sports. You're often encouraged to try and find some sort of study, but like you're saying, because it's it's becoming so professional, where, where is the balance, do you think? Um, yeah, so you need to be professional. You, you you need to live for it 100%, seven, seven out of seven. Like that's super important. But also at the same time, uh, you need to have fun. Just make it fun, relaxing for yourself, like before and after the race. Um, but then during the race, you need you need to be there. You need to be focused. Um, and it doesn't mean having fun that you're not professional. Um, I mean, just just make it more relaxing. Don't give that much pressure on yourself. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do in our team. I just I just try to keep it relaxed before and after with making a few jokes. Um, but then in the race, it's like, yeah, serious commitment uh, that I ask from, yeah, from everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, maybe going back to what I was just saying is if you have this junior under 23 development pathway and, you know, in 2025, there's going to be under 23 um, standalone world's world championship, which is going to be very interesting. Um mm-hmm. Maybe during that period is is the period that actually riders are encouraged to look at doing study or something else um, because now you don't have to be world tour at the age of 19 or 20. Like there can be this pathway and because riders can have such a long career, like if it's something they want to do and they stay healthy, you can do it until you're in your late 30s if you want because now with the introduction of maternity leave and things like that. It is a career. So you could almost take your time in a sense. If we look at like Anna Vanderbregen is a great example. Yep. You know, she burst onto the scene when she was maybe 22, I believe. Yeah. Um, and she was studying as a nurse during that period. So, I mean, she's an exception as well. She mm-hmm. is in that 0.01% of physical freaks. Um, that I like to refer to. But um, like you said, that would be a way to ensure maybe longevity in the career is that you're having fun, you're doing these 1.2 races, 1.1s, your schedule's not crazy, so you can still live at home, whether that's Belgium or the Netherlands or wherever you come from, Um, and then thinking like 24, that's it, 25, I'm going to become world tour. That that will be the smart way to do it. That will be, that will be really wise if you chose that part as an under twenty three rider. But you know, it's also really tempting if you're one of the top level riders in the junior category, and you get an offer from a rotor team. It's really tempting to go there because of the money, because of you know, because they're so professional. Um, and that's the risk now. Like a lot of young girls, they sign for a big rotor team, but yeah, it's it's yeah. It, it could be like they could have the negative outcomes in a few years, like in two or three years, they will see it. Um, so it would be more wise if if they if they chose an under 23 team and then build up their career slowly and then have something else as a backup. Um, so, yeah, I 100 percent agree. Yeah, because I feel it's just my personal feeling. There's less of a rush now. Um, and you know, I never went into the sport thinking I wanted to make money. I wanted to do while it was young because I thought I'm not really going to make money out of this, but I love it. And Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to get out of it before the age of 30, because then I'm going to need to start having a proper career where now it's actually the reverse. 
Um, so because if we look at Zoe Backstead, and I don't want to go into too much. I know that, you know, she's homeschooled. She, you know, under 19, she, she's been training like a professional woman. And I went out to an under 19 Kermess um, over the summer with our junior Australians. And, you know, Zoe attacked on the first lap and we didn't see her until the finish line. And it was just, just this mm-hmm. complete, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Every, everyone kind of expected it and talking to the local Belgians, the parents on the sideline, they're like, yeah, we expect this, but you know, my kid's in school and mm-hmm. she can only train 12 hours a week maximum. Um, yeah, but I was, yeah, true. But at the same time, there's also a struggle going on. Like if I look at the team's side of the story, um, there are too much teams right now and and not enough riders. So a lot of teams they 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 need riders, and then they're looking also at the junior category because yeah, they they come over to the elite category, so they sign those juniors, um, and that's a struggle at the moment. Um, they're just not enough of elite riders in the, in the pro peloton. And is this like we can talk a little bit about this? Um, just what what is your perspective of the growth of the women's world tour? Do you think it's just happened too fast and too many teams? Uh, are vying for these world tour licenses. Like if I look at your team, it it makes sense based on the development that you've done. I would have said if um, Lakol Wahoo um, had managed to maintain their sponsor, I hope someone else comes on board for that team because they, they're a team that have done something similar mm-hmm. in a way to what your team has been doing. Um, yeah, so there are 15 world tour licenses with the women and there are 18 with the men. So now they're saying they should level it up to 18, like to have the equal amount as with the men. Um, but I'm, I'm more of like, just, just, just go to 12 or 13 world tour licenses and then add a pro Conti status like the men have. Um, and then, and then, yeah, a lot of teams could handle it a lot more because, Pro Conti is not as expensive as a World Tour license. And then you can also ride the smaller races with a lot of World Tour teams right now can also use. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the solution is to add another category or, or another license uh, for the women. Because now you have World Tour, which is really the, the highest level. And then you have the Conti. And the the yeah, the difference between those two licenses is, is too big. It's just too big. And you have a lot of riders like in between those those two levels and yeah yeah well i mean it's there's no like with the men's if you're pro continental or i don't know if that's the word anymore mm-hmm. um there is a minimum salary too so yeah that this is the difference as well is like you've got this the world tour has a minimum salary now but it's sort of like the wild wild west once you're out of the world tour yeah, and, and and like some UCI UCI rules don't make sense because if you're a world tour team, you can have like twenty riders max plus two neo pros, mm. but a lot of teams can't pay twenty riders even even if they are a world tour team. So yeah, it's it's a bit useless useless those rules, and I think it would it would help a lot more if you add a pro conti status and yeah. Yeah, and I guess um, that that's also a good segue into how. Um, your team is actually, you know, now vying for world tour status is that at the end of last year, roughly around this time, Patrick Lefebvre said that he was going to come on board. And th- there there were some mixed reactions to this based on previous comments he made 
um, about women's cycling, but the reference there, and I think it was a bit not lost in translation because I read the Dutch article mm-hmm. and he made the the reference to the um, OCMW, um, <laughs> which is a welfare welfare center or system here in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point he was making at the time was that for him, because if we look at his team, it's been a largely Belgian-based men's team. So a lot of the biggest talents from the men's side have at some point gone through his team during their career. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we look at the women, his comment was, well, there's just simply not in- enough Belgian women for me to want to invest. Um, so I was mm-hmm. thinking about it, and this is something we spoke about and what I really wanted to also talk about on this podcast is, is just that big divide between when we go to the world championships, it's mostly the Belgians that everyone is looking at. And it has been for the men for, mm-hmm. for many years. And then on the women's side, you have yourself who came through and was just a standout. And then following on from, from you has been lots of Kopecky with that, you know, crossover between your careers. Um, and for me, it seems like there is an emergence of more strong Belgian women um, riders in the peloton. And I could be wrong here, but what's your sort of view and take on that? So, yeah, like I said, I've worked a few months for Cycling Vlaanderen. And then I also work with the, with the upcoming talents, the young talents. And I could see we have a lot of potential in Belgium, like a lot of talents coming up. Um, and even in the junior category right now, um, there's a lot more girls coming. So I, w- I would give it a few more years. And then uh, there's not only Lotte Kopecky, and then we have a few others like ne- next to her, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, it's coming. And they're doing a really good job in Belgian cycling. So they're having training camps right now. They're having a winter program at the moment with strength training with, with that national team. So we, we, yeah, we didn't have that in the past. So it was basically each, each for their own. Um, but now it's a real, it's a real team and they're really bonding together. So yeah, there is progression and, um, it is changing little by little. So, um, that's, that's positive. Um, so yeah. That's, that's really good to hear. Um, I think there was an article citing cycling tips did write about this actually during COVID times and, um, it was this decision. I don't know who's been the driving force in cycling Vlaanderen. And I often joke having lived here now a few years that Belgium is always about 10 years behind every other country um, in, in a lot of things. And so, you know, I was reading an online forum. Um, people were just discussing this big divide, like, and it, it just basically, yeah, it depends um, where the interests lie, I guess. You know, there are women on bikes, but mm-hmm. um you know, one yeah. of my relatives said to me, and this is a, a bit of an inaccurate comment, perhaps, maybe I'm wrong, but just women like to ride their bikes in Belgium, but they're not interested in the competitive side of things. Yeah, maybe that was true in the past, but like I said, it's changing now. And and the biggest difference is that they have a structure right now, they have a plan, they, they know where they're going uh, in a few years. So the first plan is the Olympics in Paris and then the next one. So there's there's really a plan behind it. And in the past, I was lucky enough to be in in, in the international big teams like Wiggle, Mitchelton, Scott, and that's that's the places. Those are the places where I gain knowledge. So I was lucky enough to gain that knowledge to use in the race and to be a better rider. Um, but I I didn't gain it from the national team. 
and and now they do so that's the biggest difference um even even though if they're junior or 19 20 years old and they're in the national team they can learn so much already now in belgium so um yeah and it, it doesn't happen overnight you know um it it takes it takes time and it takes maybe a few years but um changes are coming right now and so on that topic who who are the big talents that we should keep an eye out for you know i need to know this sort of inside knowledge so i know what i'm talking about when i'm you know calling the races um so one of the bigger ones are is uh, phoebe yoris she became third in the time trial at worlds in australia um she was also third at the european time trial um she's riding for my team so um that's good <laughs> um and yeah we have a few others um coming up um also like under 15 riders even um so a lot of new names um yeah i can't say other ones right now actually um but we have we have a few yeah speaking of young talents you've got the you know this is an australian podcast or i like to think of it as an australian american podcast um anya Lowe from australia yeah. yeah true so we signed her halfway the season last season um and i'm really happy to have her in the team uh she's such a happy person um she she's always joking around and she's really fun to be around and yeah, such a team player as well. So um, her first race uh, in the team was Tour de France femme, um, quite a big race for her as a, as a first one. Um, but yeah, she did well. Um, she, she worked hard for the team and um, yeah, a really joyful person. Oh, that's, you always need those people, right? I always thought of like Carly Taylor, which is a biased opinion, but one of those people who just like lifts the mood regardless of the situation um that's especially you need it in a stage race um you need an aussie oh yeah lucky aussie (laughs) not all aussies (laughs) that's that's true that's true um so 2023 what are the biggest what, what are your big ambitions for the team um and personally um for next year i just I just want to play the game in, in the final in the races. Uh, like last season, we were there. We were all, already happy that we were there. So we couldn't couldn't go really for a good result. But for next year, we really have finishers in the race, leaders in the in, in, in the team. So I just want to go for uh, for top results. Um, and I'm not saying winning. That would be nice, actually. But uh, just, just yeah, trying trying to be there for the win, trying to battle for victory. That would be nice. And personally? That's for the team, or is that also a personal goal? That's also a personal goal, actually. I'm 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 a winner and I'm quite disappointed if we're not winning. So uh it would be it would be good for me if we're also winning races. Yeah. And um uh we didn't mention it, but I thought uh, a really cool story that came out of 2022 was actually um the signing of of Lotta onto your team. Yeah. Um, Lotta was actually in the past my my biggest competitor. Mm-hmm. So uh, she beated me in Gentwevel again uh, with a photo finish. Um, I remember that. Oh yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I was there, and okay. I think she was like, "You won't remember, but you were going. Did I win or did she win?" <laughs> and no one quite knew for like a few minutes there. Yeah, it took a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's quite interesting now that's that she's joining our team and um, I'm really happy with it. You know, um, also she's a role model. She's a mother now. Um, 
and I'm, I'm in, yeah, I'm interested to see how how she can combine it, being a mother and and being being a writer in the team. But I have no doubts that she'll she will do a great job. And um, yeah, she's also a super nice person. Uh, I only knew her from the races, but now I, I know her like better, and it's really nice to have her in the team. Yeah, well. Thanks for coming on freewheeling, Yolene. I'd love to to actually have you on again. Um, I know that you're on a Belgian cycling podcast, if I'm correct, the Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. The follow, the follow car. I think yep, that's the follow car. Tra- yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew you had some experience with podcasting. Um, and yeah, we'll see what happens in 2023. But best of luck for everything with the team and um, your studies. I know that that combination is always a bit tricky, but like you Mm -hmm. said, you like to create challenges for yourself. So thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Mm -hmm.